Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Again, I think we have an episode that is both unique and at the same time relatable. We have a co-host today who, on the one hand, wears a hat, a professional hat, where he is very established and grounded in the entertainment world, in the Hollywood world, and the like. At the same time, he also wears a professional hat in the mental health space, in the mental health world, which is a unique pairing. It's also a really genuine story of a person's journey, both professional and individual. He is candid and transparent about his own mental health experiences, and it's, it's relatable. It's unique and relatable. It's individual, but I'm very confident that anyone listening could take a piece of this, apply it to their own specific experiences, and find some meaning in it. And I hope you get something out of it. As always, we appreciate the support, whether it's reviewing the podcast, sharing the podcast, rating the podcast, commenting, posting it on social media, all those things. We genuinely just want it to get out there so people can find some nugget that is valuable to them. Without further ado, this is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to Mental Filter, where we have the opportunity to talk to interesting people about interesting things all through the lens of mental health. As you probably know already, my name is Shmuel Fischler. I am a clinical social worker, therapist. I own a practice just a bit north of Baltimore called CBT Baltimore. And I think you're really going to enjoy this one. We have a lot of interesting, interesting things to talk about. And I will allow my co-host, Chris, to introduce himself. Chris, if you can tell everyone who you are. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. And it's nice to finally meet you because obviously I've heard of CBT Baltimore. I've seen stuff online and everything. So it's cool to finally meet you. But yeah, so my name is Chris Tronson. I currently live in Orange County, California. It's between Los Angeles and San Diego area, if people aren't familiar. I, I was born and raised in Los Angeles area, always in Los Angeles County. So this is kind of my first time moving out. But basically kind of my path after you know, in life and kind of graduating high school and stuff was really to go into the entertainment industry. I always had a passion to direct music videos. And that's when the obsessive compulsive disorder, body dysmorphic disorder really hit, brought on a lot of panic attacks, anxiety and depression, and a lot of self-medicating. And so then I was able, thank goodness, to get uh, proper treatment, a proper diagnosis, which then allowed me to go back into the entertainment industry where I've been working there since 2006, and then decided that I wanted to go to school at night in the psychology field, not really sure what I wanted to do. I was doing some advocacy and then eventually became a therapist and an advocate. So that's kind of where I am now. Just a quick glance over <laughs> the years of my life. Thank you. And there's several reasons why when I first came across Chris, why I thought he'd be perfect for what we're trying to do at, at Mental Filters, because he's very open and transparent and candid about his journey, which is really refreshing which I think could be very relatable and inspire other people. And it's also like, Chris, you have this interesting background and it's almost like a juxtaposition. You know, we'll talk about how you got 
to where you are today, but a little bit of a interesting juxtaposition of being in two different professions, which maybe to the average person would seem like, do they like mesh together? And you got the entertainment uh, industry, and then you got the psychology, mental health field. And so I I hope that we're going to get there to sort of talk about how that marriage works, so to speak. Yeah, it's always funny because sometimes my clients will find stuff online of me. And then sometimes in my entertainment field, people will find something I'm doing in psychology field. So I always feel like Hannah Montana because it's always like I feel like I'm living two different lives because they do feel pretty separate and different. Right. So let's rewind a little bit. And like you said that early on, you always had an interest in the entertainment field. How did that start? And then how did that develop? Yeah, I don't know if it's like this for the rest of the world, but like when you grow up and I, I grew up in Long Beach, which is a, you know, a, a part of Los Angeles County. But when you grow up in Los Angeles area, Southern California, there's always just a lot of focus on celebrity lifestyle. And so I remember, for instance, when I was in high school, I took a drama class. I never wanted to be an actor. That was never an interest of mine. But I took a a drama class, to be honest, to get an easy A. And we went and we were kind of seat fillers for an award show. And for some reason, myself and one of my classmates, we got right in the front and we were sitting next to celebrities and we were around it. So I was always interested in that lifestyle. But my main focus was always music. I was always much more excited about musicians and music and celebrities that did music. But the problem was I have no musical talent. So I became really, really fascinated by music videos and music videos to me were always larger than life and they were fascinating and colors and stuff. And so I'd be listening to songs and I'd get these visions in my head and colors and treatments. And so I really wanted to do that. So that was kind of my passion. My senior year of high school, there was like a film class and a photography class was kind of mixed in. And I just got a lot of positive feedback from my teachers just saying, look, you have a really good eye for this. This is something you should pursue. So when I graduated high school, I really started looking at different film programs. I got into a really prestigious one in Los Angeles. I just don't come from money, so we couldn't afford it. But I did find a film program that I really liked. And so I went to that. And that was kind of like my start into it. And what was nice about my program is it wasn't where you sat in a classroom for four years and talked about it. I mean, the very first class, you're touching camera equipment, you're filming stuff. And I became friends with a group of people and we created sort of our own production team and we did shoot music videos and live concerts and then I got an internship where I was working on a Xerox commercial and I was working on a Raid commercial and then I was working on bigger budget music videos and so for me that was sort of my passion and what I thought I was going to be doing for the rest of my life was directing sort of like big budget music videos. So how would you describe the balance between you know, there's the creativity and it's using a certain part of the brain that a lot of us don't get to use often enough, which is nice. And how do you balance between that and, well, you got to pay the bills and it's competitive. It's, you know, I'm sure it's not all glamorous and there's parts of the job that, you know, you just wish weren't there. So how do you balance that? It's a passion, you know, the old sort of like cliche is if you love what you do, then you never work a day in your life. Like, Is that really true? Uh, So how do you, in your experience, how's that been in that world? Yeah. So talking in the entertainment world, I mean, I was pretty fortunate. I was in a really good film program and the head of the program really did like me and just like the work that I did. We created a bond and his name's Warren Carter, but he was always like a mentor to me. And so he would, because I put in the work, he would find internships for me and then I would get hired and I would work. And so the way that that industry, people always say like, oh, it's not what you know, it's who you know. I mean, I definitely say it's what you know, because if you go in there and you're poor at your job, you're not going to get hired. 
But when they say, you know, who, you know, it is pretty true because if somebody's working on a project and they need somebody to do director of photography, or they need somebody who's going to work on sound, if they're working on a project currently with somebody that's just doing amazing, why risk it and not bring on that person? So, you know, it started out for me behind the scenes. And after I finished treatment, there's actually a contest, a wannabe a VJ contest for MTV2. And it was happening at a mall right by my house. And so I ended up going there and auditioning and I got it. And I went to the MTV studios in Los Angeles and I filmed that. And I kind of got my, my career to go from off camera to on camera. So I have just been fortunate that I've, I mean, I would say the pandemic was probably the only thing that's ever slowed the career down, but I've always been fortunate that I've been working in that field. I've been very lucky and I obviously don't let that ever get to my head. I mean, I've just been very fortunate to be able to do something I love. And there's a lot of cool perks with that career and I've just been consistent, but I will say you have to have that part of you that wants to not have this sort of laid out plan. Like I take this class and then I go to this internship and then I do these hours and all that. So it is something where you have to know you're going to grind. You don't know always if you're secured with something. One of the companies I worked with, we, we do a lot of television shows. So like we've done, you know, American Idol. And so you think you could dance. And so you work on a whole season of a show. So that's pretty consistent, but you do, you have to be okay with kind of always hustling and always grinding and interacting with people. And it, that has to be part of your personality because it's not one of those things that is just like stable and you know what's going to happen in, in the future of your career. It's kind of unknown and you have to be okay with that. So you have to have some flexibility. You have to have commitment and, and accept that it's not linear. It's not, you know, like yeah. A plus B plus C, you know, and then that's the next step. Absolutely. Uh, and this was back when MTV had music. Yeah, well, it's funny because it was actually when I was doing it, it was sort of mixed. It was like the end. It was where they're, you know, I was doing stuff for MTV2 and then I was doing stuff for MTV on a show called America's Best Dance Crew. It was produced by Randy Jackson, who is an American Idol host. And then it was JC Chasse uh, from NSYNC and Mario Lopez from Say by the Bell was the host. But I worked on that show. So I was actually more after the music. It was kind of that transition where there was a lot of shows. But yeah, I mean, I would say the opportunities, that was one other thing that I went in thinking I was going to do one thing on camera and ended up being different just because there wasn't as much music and video jockeying and all that stuff that, you know, I grew up with when I was younger. Right. And and you mentioned sort of how, at which point did did the OCD and BDD start to pop up and how did that impact your work? Yeah. So, I mean, my OCD hit me starting like my, my junior, senior year of high school. I mean, I, you know, you look back and there was definitely OCD and even body dysmorphic disorder. I mean, I remember when I was a kid in second grade getting ready in the dark because, you know, my aunt said once like, oh, you know, our whole family has under eye circles and dark ones. And so I didn't like how the light made my under eyes look. And so I would get ready with the hallway light, but in the dark. And you know, I was bringing combs to school because I had perfectionism with my hair looking a certain way. So I'd be combing it in recess. And so there's a lot of stuff with body dysmorphic disorder. I had a lot of relationship OCD in high school with different individuals, as well as, you know, self-medicating because of depression. So I had a lot of mental health stuff, but I was able to hold it together through film school and starting of my career behind the scenes. And then it just all hit. I mean, it got to a point where, you know, I remember I was hired to do sound on a football game 
and I showed up so late. Luckily, the football game hadn't started, but I never got hired back for that job. One of the things that I was shooting for MTV2, I ended up calling out because I was having issues with my skin and I didn't want to be on camera that day. And then the, when we rescheduled it, you know, I got there early and they had to do makeup and I just didn't like how they were doing it and kept pushing it. So it started to definitely interfere with, with my career. And it got to a point where I just kind of dropped everything. You know, I just stopped doing anything. And then I got really sick and became housebound. I got to a point for about three years where I was only leaving my house about once a week in the middle of the night on Sundays to buy enough supplies for the week, but I wasn't working. I wasn't in school talking to families. I was just housebound and, you know, suicide attempts. And it was just the lowest moments of my life. But after treatment, I didn't know what else to do. I mean, all I knew was entertainment. And so I once again had auditioned for that MTV2 role, got it. And then when I told my film school, the head of Warren Carter, the head of the film school, he was filming a show for a network that was a music show, like up and coming mu music artist named Amplified. And so I got that job hosting that. So for me, I was able to get back on camera, but that really set off the BDD. I mean, the BDD was managed through treatment, but then going on camera, it was just a whole nother beast. And I actually had to return to some treatment because it was constantly like watching me back and doing voiceovers in a booth and looking at myself and always seeing your reflection. I mean, it was just all about appearance. And so that really, really negatively impacted the BDD and I did have to go back treatment. So it was all we've done. And it wasn't until I finished treatment the second time for BDD, I'd finished OCD treatment. The anxiety and panic attacks sort of went away when I was on medication. I didn't stay on medication forever. I, I was able to get off of it, but the medication helped manage that and the depression. So finally, I was able to work fully in the industry without the BDD and OCD, but it definitely, I think, hindered my career and made it really difficult. And I had to completely like walk away from it for years because of the mental health and then treatment afterwards was a long time as well. Right. And it's hard to really walk away from something that you love and opportunities and you don't know if opportunity is going to come back. And I just want to point that I really appreciate your, your candor. And I'm sure people listening will say, oh, like I struggle with that, but it's hard to talk about it. So hearing someone else talk about it, I think is, is very important. And people who aren't super familiar, you know, with BDD, we're not going to spend 20 minutes talking about, you know, clinical, what, you know, body dysmorphic disorder. It's, you know, in a very small nutshell, it's this preoccupation with certain parts of our image that gets so blown out of proportion for us that other people wouldn't even notice and we get so preoccupied and it, it really takes over. And like you said, people listening can maybe now appreciate to what extent it's not just my preoccupation with that body part or that part of my image. It's the secondary cost of how much time then gets sucked away by being in it that now I'm you know, late for work or I can't show up to this and I can't be consistent, then I lose opportunities because I'm so sucked into this besides for just the distress coming from me being so hyper-focused on, on certain parts of certain parts of my, my body. And it's a really, really, really big struggle. When this was happening, did you have a name for it? Did you know what was going on? And at which point did you get to have a name for it? Yeah. So for me, I never knew what I was going through. You know, I knew enough about depression and substance use. I have a little bit of substance use in my family, not anything major. You know, one individual that drinks way too much alcohol. <laughs> but other than that, you know, I had some depression in my family. So for me, like when it was first hitting, I just assumed it was depression. I just thought that's how depression was. It 
wasn't honestly for me, I was living on my own with a roommate. I wasn't living in the house anymore. And this was when everything was falling apart. And I was actually at a Ralph's that was 24 hours where I'd buy all of my groceries and I was waiting for them to come up. Cause I didn't, I don't think people know this, but like at three in the morning, they're not just standing at the checkout line. Now they have self checkout, but back then it's like, you know, nobody was just standing there at three in the morning. They actually had a can with like beans in it or something and you'd shake it and then they would come up to the front. And so I shook the, the can, I had all my cleaning items and all the stuff for OCD and just like food items and stuff for the week. And the worker was kind of stocking stuff high up and she's like, oh, I'll be right there. And so there was like a, you know, of all the magazines I grabbed, you know, I think it's divine intervention, but I grabbed this teen magazine, which is probably the most embarrassing part of my story. I always tell people that I have to admit I grabbed like a, you know, I was, I think I was like 20 at the time. And it was like for 16 year old girls, but everything else was like Newsweek in time. So I was flipping through and I found this little article. I mean, it wasn't even an article. It's just probably like a filler of like, if you do these three things, you might have obsessive compulsive disorder. And it was the first time that I was like, oh my God, I think this is the thing that I have. So I didn't really have a relationship with my family at this point. I was so isolated and I had dropped out of the film industry. I had dropped out of school and everything. And I called my mom and I just was like, mom, I read this article and I think I have this thing. And she works at a hospital and she's knowledgeable. And so she talked to some doctors and came back and asked questions. And the stuff that I was fearing was more health-based anxiety. And the stuff that, you know, she was asking was like about just like general germs and grossness and it just didn't click. And so we just decided that I didn't have it, which obviously we were wrong. But after my suicide attempt and intervention from the hospital and then my parents, I was like, look, I really think I have this thing. So that was the first, you know, I went and saw a bunch of horrible doctors that did not know what they were talking about, bad treatment, talk therapy. I remember one of the doctors that I saw that was like the expert of OCD in my area through my insurance told me I was the worst case he had ever seen. It was going to be four years just to see any resemblance of normalcy. It was the longest hierarchy he's ever written. He brought my parents in and said, look, like, I think you guys are probably going to have to, you know, he's going to have to live with one of you for the rest of his life. He's not going to be able to hold a job and all this. So luckily my mom doesn't just like give up. And she was doing a lot of research and found the International OCD Foundation and found that there's specialized treatment. My psychiatrist was horrible. I wasn't even taking my medicine. I was flushing it down the toilet. I always joke that like SpongeBob and Patrick were loving their life because they're getting a bunch of Luvox because I just didn't trust the psychiatrist also through insurance. I mean, he would walk in, spend five minutes with me and walk out. So we, when we finally found real care, I remember doing the Y box and doing like a, you know, an assessment. And I felt like, okay, my therapist must be living in the bushes outside of my house because how does she know all these things about me, everything she's saying I do. And then the way the BDD came about is I was really, really petrified about opening up about my image concerns because of course with BDD, I felt it would just draw attention to it. And that, you know, and somebody was going to verify all my worries were accurate and that was going to be the worst thing in, in, ever. I was fortunate that my OCD therapist actually had BDD. She had a scar on her face and she had BDD around it. And when I finally was comfortable to open up that some of my concerns was my appearance, it just so happened that there was a clinic opening up a BDD support group. I went and did an assessment there. And once again, another person was hiding in my bushes because I'm like, oh my God, this is all my inner thoughts. And so I was part of that BDD support group and then you know, went on camera and then had to go back for individualized care. So I was just fortunate that I eventually got to help but it took many years. I mean, it took a long time, a lot of failed attempts and a lot of low moments in my life to finally get to that point. Are you comfortable sharing 
an example of some of the particulars of BDD of where the focus was? Absolutely. I mean, it started out when I was a kid with my hair. I used to bring combs to school and hide them in my backpack. And when I'd play on recess, I would always leave. There was a warning bell and then the actual bell. And on the warning bell, I'd always go into the bathroom. I would take out my, like I put these combs in like a lunch bag. And this is like, you know, this is when I'm in second grade, which at the time I think I'm like seven or eight. And I would go into this bathroom that not a lot of people would go in and I would comb my hair and just try to get it perfect. And I remember one time a kid walks in the bathroom. And like I said, I found like the bathroom, nobody went in and I hit it. And he's like, Oh, is that food? And I was like, yeah, but it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You don't want it. And he's like, no, I'm really hungry. And I was like, no, you know, I was so embarrassed that I was bringing these combs. But I remember one time I was in class and I could see my reflection and my hair was sticking up in the back. And, you know, when you're that age, you're not allowed to just go to the bathroom when you want. But I started crying and ran to the bathroom in my backpack and like fixed my hair. Then, like I said earlier about getting ready in the dark. But for me, the body dysmorphic disorder got the worst with my skin. So when I was in high school, I was absolutely convinced that I had horrific skin, acne scarring, uneven skin. I hated going to school. I hated fluorescent lighting. But what was the most maddening is, you know, I convinced my mom to take me to a dermatologist and I'd go to dermatologist and I'd say, look, I've read up on this. I need Accutane. I need Accutane. And they were just like, you don't have acne. Like, sure, you have a bump here or there, but you don't have acne. And I would describe to them. And I'm sure to this day when they do presentations, they talk about this kid in high school that would come in and just panic about Accutane because I, you know, they're like, look, we don't see it. And so finally, I found an old dermatologist who is like probably like four minutes from retiring and bullied him into getting me on Accutane. So I went on Accutane. But like I said, I probably was on it. You know, people talk about being on it for years. I think I was on it for like two months because the guy's like, look, you don't need it. But what's maddening is now, you know, when I look back at pictures from high school, it's insane to me because I look and my skin is clear. And I'm like, how did I see that? But in the moment, I mean, I saw it you know, discoloration and acne and all that stuff. So it was my acne mainly or my perceived acne, but then it started transferring to other stuff. You know, somebody made a comment once they asked me what ethnicity I was. And I said, Oh, I'm Greek, Norwegian and Greek. And he's like, Oh, I can tell you have the Greek nose. And so then I got into this whole thing about wanting a nose job or, you know, somebody made a comment once and they were like, Oh, you have a big forehead. So I wanted to get a surgery for that. Or my chin isn't strong enough. So it definitely went on to other body parts, but I would say like when I think back to BDD, it was always my skin. That was like the main thing. I did get to a point where at a while I started thinking I was balding and same thing. The doctor's like, no, you still have your hair, you know? So it's just, it's maddening because I always describe it to people like anorexia. We see somebody who's underweight almost to the point that they look like they're going to die and they feel like they're overweight. And that's how BDD is. It's like, I had clear skin and I didn't see that. So that was sort of like the main heart and soul in many years of my, I used to, when I used to blow out my candles on my birthday, I used to pray for clear skin. I used to pray for clear skin at night. And it's so funny because now, you know, as an adult, I have clear skin and you think everything's going to just be fine. Like once I get clear skin, my life will be perfect and I'll dance with unicorns through the forest, but you know, nothing changes. But when you have BDD, you're convinced if you can just fix this body part, everything will be good in the world and right in the world. Right. Thank you. And your description just speaks to how it doesn't have to focus on one specific thing. It could really be anything. It could be skin. It could be hair. It could be shape of our heads. It could be the size of our legs. It could be, it really could be anything. When you talk about hair, I mean, I think of like, you know, growing up and watching Fonzie on on unhappy days and always having a, a comb. But the difference is that he, again, it's a character, but he wasn't distressed by it. Mm. Right. That's a big difference. 
I have to admit, I've never seen that show, so I don't know who you're talking about, but... um, (laughs) I'm I'm dating myself. (laughs) But definitely, I mean, you're accurate. You know, it was never, I think more of Grease, maybe, because my mom loved that movie, so I saw it all the time, and I think it's John Travolta who always combed his hair or something. But yeah, it was definitely distress. I mean, just panicking as a kid when my hair would be sticking up and like just not being able to concentrate and stuff. So, it, you know, it's more than vanity. It's to the point where you feel put together incorrectly you feel monstrous you feel disgusting and it's difficult to live with for sure right I remember a particular person that I worked with and he mentioned hair so it reminds me and and again people don't necessarily think about how it affects a person like he would want to go out let's say with his friends to a bar but he would only want to go to a bar where he knew that there was an adequate mirror in the bathroom so that while he was out he can go check his hair which is like you know you to the average person, like that's part of the calculation. It was a stress to be able to go out with his friends and just hang out because he felt the need to be able to check on his hair. And you mentioned how you almost like see something different. I remember coming across something in the UK where they took some individuals who had, who struggled with BDD and they had them describe what they saw and they digitally altered a picture of them of what they saw, then they put them side to side. And it's like fascinating what the people describe what they saw and you put them next to each other and how so distorted it it Mm -hmm. was, you know, bigger hips and bigger face and eyes and shape and, and all this stuff that they, it's almost has this like flavor of like delusional a little bit, like other people don't see it. And they really feel like they see it. So it's very difficult to sit with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything you're saying, correct. I relate to the guy that was looking at mirrors. I mean, that was me. I remember going to a party and not really getting attention. This was after I was done with the first round of BDD treatment. And I remember I went to a party and felt like I wasn't getting attention. And I kept going to the bathroom. Do I look okay? What's wrong? You know, all that. Or anytime I'd go to a nightclub when I finally started going out, it's like always going to the bathroom, looking in the mirror. I mean, people would even make comments like, oh, you go to the bathroom a lot. And I'm like, yeah, I drink a lot of water. Hee hee. But it was really because I had to look in the mirror and I had to get that right look to feel confident and your whole mood shifts if you see something you don't like I wanted to leave I felt disgusting I hated being there so it definitely uh, affects your mood but yeah I think if I could have digitally shown people what I thought I saw versus what I now can see when I look back to pictures it's crazy I mean I, I look at these pictures I'm like how did I think I had acne and I just did. I mean, I don't know how to describe it. I remember there was a kid in, in high school who definitely did have acne. He got it horrendous, like where he needed to be, I think, on two years of Accutane to where pretty much his whole face was covered. But he had, it was weird. It was like his forehead stayed clear, but everything from his eyebrows below was just like horrible cystic acne. And I remember thinking I had it worse. And I remember telling somebody like, at least he has a patch of clarity. I don't have any. And I just remember my friend looking at me like I was freaking insane because she was just like, what are you, what? Like she didn't get it. And I think that's what's maddening and what people don't understand about the disorder. And so being on camera and watching things back, I mean, I hated it. That was the worst part of going from behind the scenes to on camera. Like I said, I never had this dream to go on camera. I, I, I mean, I did, but BDD kind of wiped it out. I still to this day don't know why myself took myself and did the audition because like I said, I still was struggling really bad with BDD, but that was the hardest thing is watching stuff back. And I used to 
actually have other people on my team or my family like watch stuff back and be like, is this okay? Because I don't want to watch it. And for years, I didn't watch my stuff back. Because once again, I would see things different. And I think part of it is because I would go in and kind of microscopically judge every part of my appearance. And then what's harder is when you're on camera, you're talking. So usually when you look in a mirror, you just see your still self. But now I'm looking on camera and seeing myself talk or certain angles while I'm interviewing. And I'm just thinking like, oh my God, you know, I don't like the way my jaw is at this side. And why didn't I stand on this side? And then you're interviewing a celebrity and some of them are very good looking and that makes you feel even worse. So I think it definitely was really difficult, you know, dealing with BDD in that. And I think a lot of people listening can relate even if they don't have body dysmorphic disorder, they can relate. We place a high premium on image, you know, public image. Even us now, you know, people are listening to this. They're not seeing video, but we're recording this through Zoom. And it's very common now since the beginning of the pandemic that we're sitting on a video call and then you see yourself as you're talking, right? So people are like, oh, wow, I'm like watching myself and I can get hyper-focused on it. And like you mentioned going in the supermarket, and what's in the aisle, what's on the magazines is, you know, the pictures. And if they're, they're Photoshopped or they had surgery and there's just like this picturesque image. So I think people can relate. There's, I forget the statistics on how many people, you know, interview, they polls of how many people would say that they're not, not satisfied with how they look. I mean, it's pretty significant. So people can relate to, you know, to that aspect of it. So it really begs the question. This is really the interesting part of your history, your story. You know, to an outsider, it seems, and you can tell me otherwise, that in the world of entertainment, in the world of Hollywood, there is maybe even more of a premium placed on image, on looks, whether it's digitally altered or whether it's physically altered and Everyone has a, a, a reputation and they're scrutinized by media and pictures and all that. And yet you're in there, you're front and center, you're interviewing people, you're in front of a camera. How does it, what, what's, I guess, speak to the, the first part of you've spoken to individuals in this industry, you know, more than the, the average listener. How do they manage sort of that? value placed on image? And then how do you manage it being that you're right in the thick of it? And there's, again, tell me otherwise, there seems to be this really high value placed on physical image and appearance. Yeah, I mean, and you can definitely feel it like over, you know, I've done on camera stuff pretty much since 2006 was when I got the show with Time Warner. And then I've been you know, I, I really kind of stepped up in 2009. So I've been, you know, in there for a while. And for me, you know, seeing that world, I mean, it is focused on image and celebrity and money. I mean, everything people think it is, it is. I mean, you go to an event and you'll be at an event. And for instance, I've done the Golden Globes every year for years now. I'm really good with two good friends with two of the people on the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. And because they're so busy, obviously, they have really important jobs the night of they're producing the show. I've stepped in for them and, and done the red carpet and done the events. And of course, I mean, there's such a focus on, you know, celebrities getting VIP and looks and stuff. And it is, I mean, you know, you see people that are good looking. I mean, I would say the average celebrity is above average looking, I, I, unless they're a comedian or, you know, that's their whole shtick is to be like the anti heartthrob or something. But the majority, I mean, it is good looking people. It's like you interview these people and 
you know, they're all in great shape. I interviewed Jake Gyllenhaal for one of his films and he was like in really good shape and, you know, facial hair and he had makeup and he just looked like he spent time on his looks. I worked on American Idol with Jennifer Lopez. I mean, obviously she spends a lot of times on her looks and looks really great. I do think though, I mean, because I would see these people in person, whether it was Madonna, George Clooney, uh, you know, it could be Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt, seeing them literally while you're interviewing them, you're a few inches apart they do look human compared to what you see in the magazines and what you see on TV. And I think that was one thing that actually ended up helping the BDD because growing up, I mean, the imaging that I would get is I would look at these magazines and look at TV shows and everybody looked flawless. Everybody looked super thin. Everybody looked super muscular, perfect skin, no wrinkles, perfect hair, but interviewing people in person, they still have makeup. They still have clothing. They still have good lighting at the events. But there's something different. There's not that whole digital world. And so that was actually something surprising to me is I'm like, wow, they're good looking people, but they don't look as like untouchable as they do on TV where there's lighting and angles and and filters and stuff. So that was something surprising. But no, I mean, you know, especially like an event I did the Oscars one year. I mean, they're coming in not eating for months and, you know, all these things under stuff. For me, I would say in the beginning, it was much harder. I mean, I felt that I had to show up to these events and I was doing press for these events and I had to be at that caliber, whether it was the the clothes I was wearing or my skin looking a certain way. And, you know, we do hair and makeup for me. So I'd look a certain way on camera while I was interviewing these people. And it was hard because you learn in BDD treatment so much that it shouldn't be about your appearance. And then your job is all about your appearance. And so it was a conundrum. I think what happened though, is I'm so thankful that, you know, I became an advocate for OCD and for BDD and and related disorders through the International OCD Foundation and eventually also locally at OCD Southern California. And I think what really helped is because I kept my foot in that world, my mindset shifted and I enjoy my job and I like going to these events, but I found myself not letting myself get so caught up. And I think that was what was most surprising for me is I enjoy the job. I like doing what I do. I love the balance of being a therapist and an advocate and that kind of very different. I became healthy to where I didn't buy into all that. So I'm like, okay, yes, they look good and they have trainers. And I'm sure the average person would look just as good if we had all that but I don't get caught up in it like I used to. I mean, it was so important to be part of that lifestyle. I think it also helped me growing up in this area. I mean, it's funny. We always joke like the people that we see that just go off the hinges are usually people coming from like Idaho or Kansas who never grew up in this. And I think part of it, when you grow up in this area, you're a little bit jaded from it. So it's not as surprising, but I would say it was definitely difficult in the beginning. And over time, I got to a point where I was much healthier about the events. It was a fun job and enjoying thing that I'm doing versus, oh my God, I need to get validation. I need to look a certain way. I need to, you know, if I take a picture with a celebrity, I need to look just as good as that. That was very in the beginning and through healthy dynamic shifting in my thinking, it really, really helped that. Yeah. And and even for someone who's not in the profession that you are, you know, appearance is, is interesting because it's not an apples to apples comparison. But say I struggle with my alcohol consumption. I could live without alcohol, right? But someone who struggles with disordered eating or appearance, I don't think the goal is to be able to be like, yes, I can go, I can go in sweats in the same undershirt for three weeks in a row and not shave and and not care and like screw everybody. And I don't care. I don't think that's the goal and the hope. 
because you still, you know, if you want to be functional and, and successful, you do have to care about your appearance somewhat. Oh, yeah. So you can't, you can't just like get rid of it. You have to balance it, which in some ways I can see being more challenging than something that really you could just live without. That well, that's sense. what, exactly. I mean, that's what's so difficult about body dysmorphic disorder. So, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder was really, really difficult for me as well. And the difference though, is that once I really got good treatment, I mean, I would say the one kind of OCD thing that has sort of stuck around and I have good management on it, but you know, part of the perfectionism I grew up with, I was always a perfectionist. And so I'm still M to a point. I mean, I want things to go well. I like to be on time. I like to have things done on time. I like to meet deadlines. I like, you know, we throw a conference every year at OCD Southern California and I want it to be perfect. I want people to leave and it'd be great speakers and great everything. But at the end of the day, like I dealt with all of the OCD, it's not something that's followed me. The BDD, what makes it tough and why it's, you know, when people call OCD a chronic disorder, I'm like, sure, but it doesn't feel that way. At least in my life, you know, having gotten better, it doesn't feel like something I deal with each day. I, I'm more annoyed by LA traffic than I am OCD at this point in my life. But BDD is something that's always going to be with you because it's always going to shift because we age. I mean, I think if we, you know, hit 25, maybe let's say, and just stayed looking like that till we died, I mean, maybe BDD wouldn't be as impactful, but it's, you know, the things that bother you, like acne was such a big thing because that was high school and everybody had pimples and we talked about it and you'd see the commercials and you hated it. Then it became hair, then it's going to be wrinkles and it's going to be something else. And, you know, it just, it's going to follow you. So that's why it feels chronic. And it's one of those things where you have to have good management. You have to have good tools, whether you're on camera or not. I mean, you know, obviously when I'm being a therapist, I feel less pressure, look a certain way than, you know, I, I did a, an event on Friday, a book launch. And it's like, of course, I cared a lot more how I looked that day. I did my hair. I like, you know, they put some makeup on me. I had a nice outfit and it was a lot more self-conscious. There was a fashion show that was going on. There's models and male models with no shirts on and like ripped shape and hello, the pandemic didn't do me any favors. So yes, there's a lot more feelings there than being a therapist, but it, when I'm being a therapist or when I'm just living my life, plus there's dating, you know, there's going out in public. So there's, there's always going to be that pressure. And that's really what you have to learn is how to manage it to a point that, like you were saying, you can't just get rid of image. And we're not, I mean, there's no way ever we're going to get, at least in my lifetime, to a point where we just finally say, you know what, image doesn't matter. Let's start focusing only on what's people's hearts and, you know, what they bring to the table. It just isn't going to happen. So that's what makes BDD so difficult. Not that OCD was, I mean, that wrecked my life too, but, you know, it's going to be with you forever image. Right. I have this question and I, I haven't really looked at the research recently and maybe, maybe you can answer it anecdotally. Is there a different, because you mentioned suicide attempt with the people that I've worked with, with BDD, it seems a little bit more ego uh, syntonic than dystonic, meaning and for people listening, that means it's harder to externalize and see like, okay, this doesn't make sense. This is problematic. They, it's more like, it's more enmeshed in them. And I have found, again, this is only anecdotal, that the suicidal ideation for BDD is higher than maybe with OCD. Do you have any more information on, on that type of thinking among people who struggle with BDD? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll answer it as a clinician and answer it as myself. I mean, I would say as a clinician, my clients, I see a lot of clients with BDD and 
I think it's because a lot of people don't treat BDD the way that I feel like it should be treated. I think people a lot of times will treat BDD like it's OCD about image. And I know it's so much more having both disorders. I mean, the OCD, there was always part of me, even though I was severe and housebound because of it, there's always a part of me that knew like something was wrong. Other people don't do this. What's going on? But the BDD doesn't, that's what makes this disorder so difficult. Just like anorexia, the person isn't sitting there looking in the mirror and saying, oh, I'm fine, but I feel thin. It's like, no, they look in the mirror and, and that's how it felt with BDD. How are you going to tell me I don't see what I don't see? I'm looking at the mirror. I see the acne. I see the, you know, the scarring. I see the hair falling out. I see the big nose. I see the jaw, you know, you see it. So I would say in my practice, I see a lot of clients with BDD and the clients with BDD are definitely much more dealing with suicidality, whether it was an attempt, whether it's consistent thoughts about it, et cetera. I would say OCD higher than the average person, depression higher than the average person, but BDD even more. When I had my suicide attempt, I would say that OCD definitely had a part in it because OCD caused me to not be able to leave the house because of all the compulsions I was doing 10, 15 hours a day. The BDD brought on a different feeling of sadness. It was just feeling absolutely hideous and unattractive and broken and put together incorrectly and not wanting to be seen by people. And that was a big reason I isolated and the isolation brought depression and that brought on, you know, just like the disconnection with real life. So I would say both of them had a hand in my suicide attempt. I would say the BDD though made it a lot more plausible because of just how it made me feel in the isolation that was brought on. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm curious about something and it might if this is a question that puts you in an awkward position, you don't have to answer it. <laughs> I don't know, you know, the relationships you have with the people in the entertainment industry or particular public figures, you know, that people recognize, but I'm curious about this and I want to bring it up because I think I'm not involved in the entertainment industry and, and most people aren't sort of people see it as like this, almost like this fantasy world, this bubble of this larger than life, people who are in this, you know, for a lot of people, it's like an escape, the whole entertainment, you know, industry, whether it's film or TV or music, it's like this other world. And I'm always curious about the, they're still, like you said, when you get to know them, they're people, they're people like you and I, who are players in this world. So I'm curious about, you mentioned earlier, how they sort of buy into this pressure of image and you said like leading up to things they might not be eating and they might be exercising and so I'm sure it's a mixed bag and I know I'm having a very long-winded question here for everyone listening I apologize I'm sure it's a mixed bag I was always curious they buy into it now are they happy are they able to compartmentalize and realize well I'm choosing to do this because I know it's important for my career, but I can shut it off. Do they get really like sucked into it? When you're a public figure and you're so scrutinized all the time, how do you stay grounded? I mean, as an average person, it's hard to stay grounded. You have so many different responsibilities and pressures and stressors, and it's difficult for that average person. Like life has challenges and it's hard to stay grounded. When you're under such scrutiny, and it's like, what have you done for me lately? You know, how did your latest movie do? Or your latest gig go? And how did you perform? Like your latest album? And everything is just like, perform, perform, result, result, result. You're on this camera. And there's a paparazzi. Ooh, we caught them coming out of the coffee shop and they're wearing sweats. Are they gaining weight? Are they? So it, I know it's like multiple layer questions. You know, how do they stay grounded? Are they 
choosing to do this? Are they miserable? Is there ever discussion about BDD amongst, you know, amongst themselves and about mental health amongst themselves, even if they don't feel comfortable really, you know, publicly talking about mental health, although I'll say I'm encouraged more and more. It's a more of a public conversation. I know I threw like eight questions in there, but <laughs> let's, if you can talk a little bit about some of that stuff, I think it'll be really meaningful. Yeah. You know, I, when I was first coming out, I was working for a company that did a lot of like young Hollywood. And, and I would say I became close friends with actors and actresses and singers and stuff when doing that, because they were young coming up in the industry. I was young coming up on the hosting side. So I was interviewing them all the time at events. And, you know, sometimes we would be sitting there waiting for their publicist and we'd have like 20 minutes to talk and stuff. So I would say what I always noticed is like the younger males, especially didn't seem to be as affected. I'm not saying they weren't because a lot of their thing was like staying in shape. And I think they're, you know, I used to run gyms when I was, that was one of the first jobs I, I did after my treatment because I stumbled a little bit after treatment. I was still sort of in treatment and kind of worked some quote unquote, like regular jobs. I actually worked a lot of regular jobs until, you know, got back into the industry, but you know, I used to run gyms and there's that culture. And so a lot of my friends that were actors, like I had friends that were on, you know, were the Power Rangers, there were characters in, you know, Power Rangers show, I had a friend on MTV's Teen Wolf and stuff. And so they had to be like ripped and they never seemed to be problems with that because I think that's okay. Like that's the culture you go on, you know, my clients that have BDD about their, you know, more muscle dysmorphia, they'll show me all these videos on TikTok and Instagram reels where it's like all this just like gym culture. And so I think for them, unless they were just lying to me, I mean, they always kind of were, I remember asking one time, I'm like, oh, you always have to get up early and work out. And he's like, I love it. You know, it makes me feel good and stuff. I would say my friends that were, you know, actors or actresses that were younger when I was, like I said, when I was starting out and was in that young Hollywood circle, that was more miserable. I mean, it was like, we'd go to events. They always had great food. They would always make comments about being hungry, but couldn't eat a lot of like, you know, having to touch up and make up before going out because they knew there'd be paparazzi. I remember like I interviewed Rob Kardashian. This was back when he was a little bit healthier mentally and physically. But I remember we were going out to the red carpet. We did a one-on-one -on -one interview. We kind of had an exclusive with him and like the paparazzi were there and he's like, yeah, cool, whatever. But there's a couple female celebrities that showed up and Kourtney Kardashian's sister was there too. And I remember we were about to go out to do the same interview and they had heard paparazzi and they were like freaking out. They're like, oh my God, let me do my hair, my makeup. So I think unfairly, there's definitely a lot more pressures in Hollywood for women. There's an age limit for women, all of that. I mean, there's so much more negativity towards women. So it was always something there. I mean, you always see appearance. I don't think there was ever a discussion about body dysmorphic disorder or BDD per se, because I think it's still misunderstood. I mean, now you have this emergence of like Zoom, you know, uh, dysmorphia or uh, body dysmorphia, and it's kind of watered down. I think BDD, uh, you know, somebody who has body dysmorphia is definitely struggling. It's not a DSM term, but people have kind of coined it as like, oh, I've gained weight over Thanksgiving. I'm having some body dysmorphia. But so I don't think actual BDD is talked about. But there is always this understanding. I mean, there's this focus when you're on the carpet about what are you wearing, your nails? Oh, you look so thin and healthy to the women and the men. It's like, as long as they're muscular and looking decent, it's fine. So I, I would say to answer your question, I mean, that's what I felt more is just the female celebrities getting a lot more of pressure of how to look and they're more open about it. And they, you know, you've seen over the years them talking more about it. Whereas I, I think the men, it was more so as long as they stayed in shape, they always get an easier pass. I mean, all the time, like, 
you know, people make comment about a female celebrity at 35 looking old. And then a male celebrity is like 60. And it's like, he's, you know, most attractive man of the year in people. And you're like, how is that balanced? So I definitely saw that. I would say what I see more for men is muscle dysmorphia, where they don't ever feel big enough. And they're constantly working out and they're constantly taking when I worked at the gym, it was like everybody was on these supplements or steroids and stuff to look bigger. And once again, you look at them and it's like, dude, I don't think you can get bigger or you're going to pop. But to them, it was like, I'm not big enough. So I, I would say that's how I would see it in in celebrity world. Wow. Sounds really pressured. I mean, in, in a broader sense, is there opportunity for them to just talk about like mental health or is it like afraid like well if we talk about I can't be too vulnerable because that might jeopardize you know something is there room for that well I have a couple friends that are celebrities that do deal with mental health stuff and they have been public slightly but the problem is no celebrity wants to make that their like hill to die on because the world hasn't caught up yet so if a celebrity is coming out and their whole focus is mental health you know like for instance like my um, I can never say her name, Maya Mbalik, thank you, who um, was the keynote at the IOCDF, like she was willing to do the keynote and stuff. And she's been, she has a mental health podcast, but you know, she's doing Jeopardy now, like she has another show, like she wants that to be the loud conversation in the room. Or, you know, there's, I worked on a show called X Factor and Camila Cabello became a friend of mine. And, you know, she's been open about intrusive thoughts and OCD and, and Lele Pons, who I was one of the first people to interview. She had a show on YouTube read about her OCD, but the hard thing, and, and I don't fault any of them. The hard thing is if that's all they talk about, the way that the industry is going to paint them is like, oh, that's that person with the mental health stuff and not focus on that. And we see that with like celebrities that end up going through rehab and then be a spokesperson for, you know, addiction. You do have the Robert, um, his name's slipping my mind, Iron Man. Robert Downey, <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. Jr. Yeah, you have Robert Downey Jr.'s that are able to turn it around. But look, even there, there's a famous interview online where somebody asked him about his addiction and he threw a fit and kicked him out of the room because he wanted it to be this thing where it's like, look, I've turned myself around, let's stop talking about it. So I think that's what's hard is it's still you have to be really touchy on the subject. It's okay if like as a celebrity, you raise money for kids' mental health and you talk about it twice a year at an event, sure. But if you were to become an advocate, then suddenly that's what you're going to be painted as. And it, that's why we don't have as many celebrities really coming out and talking about it on a consistent year-round basis and really trying to make change. Right. I hear that because then that becomes their identity. Well, I hope that, you know, behind closed doors or on their own, not in front of the camera, they, they are talking about it in some form because, you know, like you said, they're just as human as, as the rest of us. Absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about dating. Yeah. Well, can you give insight to people? I think this is also very, very relevant because there are certain times and places and situations where for better or worse, image is heightened, right? So for you, maybe it's like, okay, being on the red carpet and for someone else, it's, you know, when I have an interview or whatever it is and dating, sure, when someone is dating, so then image, you know, you can, like they say, you can only make a first impression once, right? So can you talk a little bit about for someone who struggles with this, what it's like to be in the dating world? Yeah. So dating was extremely difficult for me uh, with BDD. And I think it's difficult for everybody with BDD because when you think of dating, I mean, obviously you know that your personality matters and how you treat someone matters. 
But when you have BDD, one thing that happens is your whole focus is on body image. It's all you care about. And your brain kind of prioritize that. And it's always at the front of the, you know, your thinking patterns on a daily basis. So when it comes to dating, sure, the average person is like, yeah, a lot of it has to do with looks. But to us, it's like, everything has to do with looks, I have to look a certain way. And I have to look like this, and I have to be in this kind of shape. And so that is difficult for dating with BDD. And often people with BDD don't date. Or like with BDD, what we do a lot of times is we have in our heads almost this running list of like, I need to change all these things about me. So I remember like when I was really struggling with BDD, I had this list. It's like, okay, I need to get clear skin. Then I need to get tan. And then I want to get the certain hairstyle. I need to get these clothes and I need to, you know, figure out a hairstyle to cover my big forehead. And I need to, you know, lose weight. So my jaws, you know, all these kind of like moving parts to look a certain way. And then I can date. And that's what I see in the BDD world a lot. It's just this idea of like, you need to look a certain way to be okay to date. And so it was hard for me, like with dating is so, you know, when I finally, finished treatment, I ended up getting in like my first real relationship. And what was so difficult is that, you know, I was out kind of in the dating scene. And, you know, I was with somebody and we would go to bars and we'd go to clubs and stuff. And it's like, you know, I, for me, I'm gay. So I was in a same sex relationship. And I think that added a whole level of stress with BDD is because I would compare myself to my partner a lot. And then if we would go, I remember we went to this party and somebody was hitting on my boyfriend. And instead of being mad in the traditional sense of like, oh, why is somebody hitting on the, the person I'm with? It was more so, well, why aren't they hitting on me? What is wrong with my appearance that they would think my partner's more attractive than me? And so for me, that was a really big, hard um, part of dating. And then when I you know, finished treatment and finally went out in the dating scene and was in that community, we were all still young. I mean, I was very young. And so, you know, sure, people were in relationships, but it wasn't like we were like in our late 20s, early 30s, getting married with kids. It's like everybody's kind of dating and getting to know people. And so there'd be people that would hit on me and hit on him. But I was so focused on the attention and the attention needed to validate that I was good enough looking or attractive. And the problem is with BDD, just like with OCD, any reassurance you get is short lived. So I may go out and get hit on and my boyfriend didn't and then I'd go to bed or whatever. The next day I woke up, it was almost like short-term memory. I was back to needing attention and it made me miserable to be in a relationship with. I mean, I do not envy my, my, my first partner because I constantly needed reassurance that I was attractive, that I looked good. Do I look better than everybody else? Are you always attracted to me? Do I look okay if I'm wearing this kind of clothes? Do I this, do I that? So there's constantly this bombardment of my partner of do I look good enough? And it puts so much pressure on him because he had to sit there and, and step up and give enough reassurance. And as you know, with OCD, with BDD, there is no amount of reassurance you could ever give. So dating was horrible and it was difficult and it was hard and I hated it, but it was this necessary evil because I needed validation that I looked good enough. And so I would say, you know, there was always pressure to lose weight and to be muscular and to have clear skin and have a cool hairstyle and dress nice and, you know, worried a lot about what people said. And I think for me, I overdated. I mean, you know, I was always in a relationship. I was always dating because of that fact. And it wasn't until I really got mentally healthy about it and just said, okay, I want to date to date. <laughs> I don't want to date to get validation that I'm okay and like good enough. But it is hard. I mean, when you have BDD and you're first going on dates, your mind's racing. Like, does this lighting in this room good look, look good? Do I look as good as they thought? Do they find me attractive? Does this outfit make me look thin enough? I mean, you have all these thoughts racing through your head and you're trying to focus on a date. So I would say dating is probably one of the most difficult things to do with body dysmorphic disorder.
And let's be real. Let's call a spade a spade. When someone's going on a date, the one person's really is, is assessing the other person. And I mean, it's just part of it. We can't ignore that that doesn't exist. And I, I very much appreciate everything that you're saying, both personally and working with people and, and how so many of us will put so much stock into all the external evaluation and not give ourselves enough of the power to and what about what I think myself? And it, it's so external. So great. If it happens to be that in that moment, someone reassured or someone gave a compliment. Great. I'm on top of the world. But like you said, it's temporary. And then I'm down in the dumps and then I'm on top of the world and I'm down in the dumps. And it's just never it's I call it, I, I refer to it as like insatiable beast. Like there's no amount that you're going to be able to feed it that it will be sustained. It'll keep and needing having to go back for more and more and more. And we don't allow ourselves like what about just what I think? And I can't imagine that, you know, specific to dating, I can't imagine that dating apps help and social media helps because so much of that is, is altered and, and, and artificial. When you see photos on, you see all these perfect photos and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, a couple of thoughts. First of all, it, not only is it dating is hard, but intimacy and sex, because now you're in the room with the person, you're naked, you're bearing all there's lighting. I mean, you know, I would say intimacy and sex was even harder, you know, because the dating part was already difficult, but now you're being vulnerable. And I think when you have BDD, you're trying to hide yourself as much as possible because you're so ashamed of how you look. And so when you're dating and being intimate, you're really not. And then you just made a good point. I mean, social media has wreaked havoc on people with BDD and body image concerns because you're getting such artificial things thrown out there. First and foremost, you're only seeing people's highlight reel. So you're seeing somebody on a day that they feel attractive, they look attractive, they have amazing background, their hair is done, their makeup or their clothes or they're looking nice, they're in a suit, you know, whatever. And then they're smiling and then there's a cute caption and you're only seeing you know, edited photos, pretty much filtered and stuff. And look, we're all guilty of it. Because if you don't put a filter on your pictures, if you don't make it look good, you feel like you're the ugly stepchild, because everybody else is doing it. So there's such a competition, I would say also dating apps, I mean, I'm not on it, thank God. But there's a dating app that one of my clients with BDD showed me, I think it's called Clover or something, I don't know. But you like swipe, but what it does different than Tinder is you can go and you can look at all the people that swiped left and said no to you. And I'm like, why would anyone want that? Why would you want to go on and find what kind of people are rejecting you? And so obviously for my client, he was using it obsessively to try to get these answers. Like, why is this good looking girl not think I'm an attractive guy? You know, for me, I'm only on one dating app and I don't even really use it right now. I haven't even been contemplating dating through the pandemic because I've been so focused on clients and advocacy, but I hate it. I mean, it's so superficial. It's like, I'm going to look at a picture and decide if I'm going to swipe right or swipe left. And so you know, there's a whole, you know, I remember somebody that I, I, I was attracted to when I was in college, nothing came out of it. But traditionally, nobody would probably say that he was an attractive person. I just don't think because all my friends were like, Oh, why, why do you have a crush on him? He's not good looking. But he was so funny. He had such an amazing personality. And he really made me happy. And so that's kind of lost because you may never get to know that side of a person because you never gave them a chance because you didn't like how they looked. And so one thing I try to do is even if I'm not attracted to somebody right off the gate, that's attracted to me, I try to go on some dates and give it a chance because there's been people that their personality and stuff has won me over. And I think that's lost. So no, I mean, social media, I've done talks on it, presentations, the altering of it, it, there's studies that show it raises depression, it makes people feel more isolated. But it's a it's an evil that's not going away. I mean, nobody's tomorrow going to get rid of social media or dating apps. So I think 
it would be great to have a team of people with BDD to create one. And it reduced, you know, we figure out how to make it so it doesn't have as many problematic components. But it's one of those things where that's what treatment teaches you is how to have a healthy mindset around it and to not take it personal. I mean, not everybody is going to find me attractive. That would have killed me to say when I was at the heart of my BDD. But now I know that that's just a fact, just like I don't find everyone attractive. So going in with the healthy tools, you can use those items and have a healthy outlook on it. But when you're initially struggling or you're undiagnosed, I mean, those are the things that I see really, really tear my clients apart. Right. And to piggyback off that, you know, Hollywood has been around a long time and, you know, it's just become a term to have like a, a Hollywood ending, you know, this picturesque life. And I have clients who are able to sort of admit that even though on one hand they know it's not realistic, there's this allure of this like fantasy picturesque movie, rom-com, whatever, vision of life, which part of that is image. And it reminds me of one of the opening scenes of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, where, you know, she would get up at night and go to the bathroom and fix her hair and her makeup so that when her husband got up, it would be all this picture, perfect image. So how much, well, it's a three-parter here, is like, What's this allure of this fantasy world and, and how much does, you know, it's a very embedded in our culture, Hollywood entertainment, how much does that affect then our value placed on it? And then specifically you're in the world and you get to know some of these individuals who are in it. Do they too sort of buy into this, get sucked into this picture perfect Hollywood like world that translates to life, which inevitably is going to crash and burn because it's it's not realistic. So I'm curious about those three things. Yeah. So I would say the first question is, you know, a lot of my friends that have become hosts and I met and stuff, a lot of them weren't from California. And it's funny because one of the things they would say is, especially when we'd work on stuff, you know, they'd say like, I still love my job. And there are some perks, but man, it is way different than you think. You know, like I worked on on American Idol for many, many seasons and growing up, even being here in Los Angeles. But, you know, when talking to my friends that are hosts from, you know, the middle of the country where they don't have anything like that. I mean, they would tell me like, you know, you would get your whole family, you'd sit around and American Idol has felt like this dream, like you're this normal person plucked off the street and you get hair, makeup and attention and you get to sing each week and get millions of people that love you and vote. And then you get a career and you become Kelly Clarkson. Right. But working on it, you see the behind the scenes. I mean, you see the trailers and the backstage, which is all construction and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I think the reason that people, the first part of your question is the reason that people are so enamored by it is because once again, it's like a highlight reel. It's what it would be like to live, you know, all the time in like this kind of happy, perfect bubble. It's like, you look great. You have trainers, you get to go to these awesome parties. It doesn't, the celebrities, I would say what's changed a lot has been like TMZ and a lot of behind the scenes stuff. I mean, you know, when the industry first started, it's like celebrities were even more untouchable. So you'd only see them when they came out to these big events. And I think that's why people were way more enamored with Hollywood, you know, pre some of this stuff, especially before either of us were born in like the thirties and the forties, because you would only like the Marilyn Monroe's and stuff. I mean, you didn't know the behind the scenes and the drug addictions and the, the sexual 
assault and all the nasty stuff that has come out about it. It was only what they wanted you to see. So if I'm a person who is going through a loss of a family member, or if I've gained a lot of weight, or if I get a disease, or if I lose my job, I mean, those parts we don't see with an actor, we don't see with Hollywood, we don't see with an actress. So you see everything just sort of picture perfect. And it's an escape for us. And we can look at that and say, man, I wish I had Jennifer Lopez's life. Like she wakes up each day and she gets catered food and she has a nanny for her kids and she gets to go to movie set and just be herself and get paid millions for it. You know, it's the American dream. And so it's deliberately packaged that way. So we keep shoveling money to go buy a corner, a chunk of it. So, you know, people will wait eight hours in the cold to be able to sit and watch a show being filmed so that they can get a taste of it. So it just looks like the good life. And like I said, I think what's tarnished it is the TMZs and, and the 24 hour news cycle. Cause you know, when the Harvey Weinsteins came out, I mean, I think it made a lot of people think like, wow, you know, I'm going to be an actress, but I may come across this. Or when we've had more and more celebrities overdose, it's like, well, there must have not been that happy or like a lot of child actors being miserable. I think it took a lot of parents to pause. So I would say some of that is varnished, but still to this day, I mean, you have people around the world looking at these Hollywood celebrities, these attractive people. To me, it feels a lot like high school. You know, when you're in high school, it's like the popular kids got all the girls and they got all the attention. And, you know, I was on prom court my senior year and I was pretty popular and stuff. And it's like, when I wasn't popular, when I was like a freshman at a different high school, I had way closer friendships and way, you know, happier. But when I became popular, it was like everybody was shady to each other and superficial. And so a lot of Hollywood is that, but it's also an escape. The second question, I think it affects people a lot. I think it affects body image, but it affects more than that. I mean, you know, you'll have people in, in marriages that don't think their marriage is that great because it's not like this one movie, the notebook that they watched. And I'm like, yeah, but the notebook was a script and they had lighting and they had actors and, you know, all of that. Or even reality show. I mean, I think more people get reality TV now is pretty fake. But I think in the beginning when it was first introduced, everybody bought into it like, oh, this must be happening. And so, you know, it's artificial places set up with people that were psychologically tested to be in a room together to cause a, a certain amount of stirring. So I don't, I, I know that when we see the, the research, that a lot of young people are dealing with depression because of it. But, you know, when you look at the, the Instagram celebrities, my young female BDD clients are looking at, it's these girls that are so thin and they've come out and said they've had an eating disorder to look at that thin. And it still doesn't deter my clients because they want to look that way because they're getting ad deals and they're getting boys are always commenting like that. And, and they see the boys in their class looking, you know, talking about how hot so-and-so is and they want to look like that. And then the final question, I mean, I have friends that started in the industry young and I don't think it leaves them. And now having a psychology degree and working in the mental health field I understand why. I mean, we develop so much of our personality by the age of 28. And so if you've spent the last 15 years of your developmental time, you know, till you hit 28, you still develop after 28. But, you know, in this world, a lot of my friends that started really young in this world, I mean, it is important to, to them to get the social media likes and to be seen and to get booked. And when they're not booked, they don't feel like they're worth anything because their worth was around that. And then when it comes to looks, I mean, you know, that has always been part of it. They're going to get a job because they got the best headshot and they look better than everybody else and they're fit. And, you know, nobody's ever casting for like an ugly middle-aged woman that doesn't look very great unless it's a typecast. So I know that they're affected by it too, but you get caught up in it just like I did in the beginning where you feel like it's, even though you know it's an evil, it's a necessary evil that you feel like you have to be a part of. 
because that's what the culture is there. And so everyone gets caught up into it. I mean, all the time when we're about to do an interview, you know, the celebrity will turn to their, you know, my face look good and okay, is the lighting okay? I remember when I worked on American Idol with Mariah Carey, she had her own lighting team. You know, she wouldn't do interviews in a certain spot because she didn't like the background. So a lot of them get caught up in it. I think some of them don't, you know, and I think somebody like an Adele, you know, she's done a lot of interviews. She just doesn't go to parties and she doesn't live in that lifestyle. So there are some celebrities that I think live some normalcy outside of it. But I think a majority, especially when they're younger and caught up in that before they have families are totally bought into that whole world. Right. You once in a while you read about, you know, someone in entertainment who either, you know, it's their family that really like strongly keeps them grounded and tells them don't go there or they have like a ranch in Montana or something and they don't like live and breathe it in the heart of it and maybe that helps but like we said again and again there there are people just like us before we sort of wrap a bow on this and we can go on for for hours <laughs> I, i'm curious to hear and i would love for people to hear sort of the, the here and now what does advocacy look like for you and having a foot in both worlds like you're in a unique position actually to be able to to advocate what does that look like and also what kind of messages would you give to people not just the ones who are struggling with BDD but what could people everyone saying doing something can help you know is a little piece of the puzzle you know to help with this so what are some thoughts on that yeah so for me I, I remember when I started so the way that my advocacy journey actually started was I was finished with BDD treatment the first round. And I was talking to my psychiatrist about going down on medication. And he reached out to me and said, Hey, Montel Williams is filming an episode of BDD in New York. And I was going to go out and speak. I just can't, but they're having a different, you know, psychiatrist on the show, but they want to have somebody with BDD on the show. Would you be willing to do it? And I'm like, sure. Thinking he meant like in three months or whatever. And it was probably like a Tuesday. And he's like, okay, you'll fly out this Thursday. And I was like, oh my God. And I was really young at the time. So they wanted a parent um, to come with me. So my mom, who's from New York, was like, okay, it's all expenses paid. I'll take the time off of work. So we went and I did the Montel Williams show. And then they brought me on for a second episode. And I just remember getting bombarded on social media of people that are just like, oh my God, I have this. Like, how did you get better? Like so many people were like, you know, hitting me up on it. And then Dr. Drew somehow found me and I did Dr. Drew's show. And then I'm half Norwegian and this big popular talk show from Norway was out filming and they wanted to do something with me. And it just the, the local newspapers and websites and stuff. And so once I started doing that, I think what kept me in it wasn't the attention because with BDD, I never wanted the attention, but it was definitely just so many people saying, oh my God, like you are putting a name and a face to the disorder I've been struggling with since I was a child. And I remember how I wish I would have had that if I would have seen something or got gotten information back when I was in middle school, I could have gotten help, not suicide attempt, not the isolation. And so for me, you know, I, my idea was always, I'm going to be an advocate, but I love the entertainment industry. I'm going to advocate as like a second thing. But as I started advocating, I really fell in love with it. And as I was in the industry longer and longer, the entertainment industry, I was like, okay, I like this, but it's superficial. It's very surface level. It's very fun. You know, I get to dress up. I get to go to this after party. I get to eat good food. I get to meet celebrities. Yay. But I think I grew up, even besides having mental health stuff, I just grew up raised different. I've just always been a deeper person. My favorite thing would be to sit with a good friend at the beach and talk for eight hours versus a party. Like I love people. I love hearing stories. I love getting to know people. And you don't do much of that in Hollywood. It's very high school. It's very superficial. So I started advocating 
And all my friends in the entertainment industry would see me do all this mental health stuff. And some of them in the beginning were like, you shouldn't do this. It's going to tarnish your image. It's going to prevent you from getting jobs. It never did. But also people didn't understand it. They're like, you're working in the entertainment industry. Like, why are you now going back to school for psychology? Why would you do that to yourself? And I'm like, I'm young. I don't have a family. I can do whatever the hell I want with my free time. I'm not a therapist on Saturdays at three in the afternoon when there's an award show, right? So what I, I started out on the Speakers Bureau for the International OCD Foundation. And what that had me do is anytime there would be a media inquiry on the West Coast, I was the only person on the West Coast. I would get interviewed and filmed and talk about my experience with OCD and, and body dysmorphic disorder. And then, you know, it was a skin picker and depression and stuff as well. And then the IOCDF kind of built up their advocacy team and they started naming national advocates, which is Liz McInvale and Ethan Smith. And then they asked me to be a lead advocate. So with that, I've had plenty of opportunities. I mean, I've been interviewed for Vice, for Vox, for MIC, for BuzzFeed, for NBC, you know, I've done Good Morning America for it. So I've been able to speak on all these. I've been in two documentaries now. So I've been really able to share my story. And the reason I do it is not really me. Like I said, I've always been somebody that likes, that's why I went into hosting instead of acting. I like focusing my attention on the celebrity versus me, the, the attention. But I do it because I want somebody to hear my stuff and just say, oh my God, that's me. There's hope. I can get better. So the message that I try to get out with advocacy is that, I mean, I didn't come from money. I didn't have a treatment center down the street. We didn't do it right out the gate. I didn't have my diagnosis five minutes after my first symptoms, but I still got better with all that adversity against me. And so Jeff Bell, who was a national advocate for the IOCF for so long, has the A2A, which I'm one of their core advocates for. And we're doing a lot of good stuff as well. And it's just, it allows me to let people know wherever they are that there's hope, there's help, there's treatment, you can get better. And now I can live a fulfilled life. I can do events on a carpet and not struggle with my appearance. I can watch something that I film. I did something for American Idol that aired on a lot of different television networks. And it's like, I, I can see that and not want to cringe and die. I can post pictures and not spend hours worrying about how it looks. So I want people to know that there's help and there's hope. And what I've loved about my life is I love being a therapist and I love doing entertainment. I love both of them. And you were saying earlier, this idea of like doing what you love. So you don't feel like you work a day in your life. I truly feel that way. Cause I had bogus jobs when I was growing up, I worked at Knott's Berry farm and I worked at Dave and Buster's and red Robin and these other jobs. And it did feel like a job. I mean, my careers don't feel that way, but I love how it's like the yin and yang. Cause I think if I only did mental health, there's a part of me that loves that industry that I would miss in the entertainment. But if I only did entertainment, I would completely miss out on being a therapist and being an advocate and doing mental health stuff. So my hope is what continues to happen. I think my number one goal is advocacy is I will be so happy and content, hopefully in my lifetime, the day that mental health and mental health disorders are treated with the same urgency and the same sympathy and empathy and attention that physical health is treated with. And it's not. There's so much stigma around mental health. There's such a need for more resources for mental health. So the day that somebody can take a day off of work because they're really struggling with depression and don't need to have an illness or a cough or a virus to get the day off, the day that our society genuinely has our insurance companies, our medical and mental health, our medical industry, and just people in general, as soon as we can get them to treat mental health with the same importance as physical health would be the day that I felt like, okay, like something really, really changed. And all the advocacy that I've been a part of feels like it was worth it. I'm right there with you. I, I, I pray for that day. 
and the story is very real. It's very, you know, relatable. It wasn't clean. It was messy. And what could the average person do to do their little part even? So there's the people who, you know, hope that they can get help. And, and what about the rest of the population? Like, what could they do in their little way that just reinforces, reduces stigma or responds in a helpful way? Like, what could be one or two things that they could learn? I would say people with any of the disorders, when you're ready, it's about opening up and it's about sharing. And it doesn't have to be on a nationally syndicated TV show like I did. It doesn't have to be on, you know, Good Morning America or NBC. It doesn't have to be to that level. It really doesn't. But just, you know, I've had high school clients start a mental health club at their school, or I've had people tell their grandparents about their treatment or, you know, had their grandparents called into a session so I could tell them about what they're going through. I think you can advocate on any level. There's no small, big, large, et cetera. Sure. More people might have seen some of the, the stuff that I've done, but somebody advocating to five people, that's five new people that know that BDD exists or OCD or mental health exists. So I would say for everybody, it's that. People that are more comfortable about sharing their story, you don't have to dedicate your whole life to it, but it's always going to be amazing the more people that advocate and the more diverse of advocates. You know, people of different ethnicities, different racial backgrounds, different classes, different religions is so important because somebody who grows up Muslim or somebody who grows up Black may look and say, okay, I don't see a lot of people talking about mental health in my community, or there's a lot of stuff in the LGBTQ community that people will reach out and say, oh, thank God you mentioned that in an interview, because I didn't even think of that. You know, I didn't realize that dating somebody of the same sex or gender, like really negatively impacts the BDD, because I'm comparing myself to the person I'm supposed to love, you know, I'm, I'm in love with. So I think the more diverse and stuff, and the more people that speak out on a larger scale can help. I think that we can have advocates that are family members, kids, cousins, neighbors, best friends, coworkers. They don't have to be the person with. It can be people that are impacted and see a loved one being impacted that can jump in as well. And then lastly, what's so hard is somebody who isn't impacted really by mental health, either they've never struggled or they haven't had a loved one struggle. There's probably not really a buy-in of why they should care. But inevitably, at some point in your life, you or somebody you love is going to have dealt with it. And so my hope is even if they're not ready to advocate or watch, you know, listen to a podcast on it or something, my hope is they at least just treat the people going through it with some sympathy, with some understanding and some validation. At least don't be part of a problem is what I would strongly suggest. You have my support. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We just got to get that to happen. But what I look at is from when I started advocating, you know, I, when I was working on American Idol, one of the contestants had OCD, she had tics, and she talked about it in an episode, and she talked about it in our interview. Or, you know, there's been maybe not specifically OCD, but there's been other celebrities I've interviewed that have talked about their mental health. I think the more that we can get celebrities and, and not even just celebrities, but, but, but people that are well-known figures, historical, you know, people that could be politicians and could be, you know, prominent figures in our community, mayors, whoever, I think the more we can talk about it and have that conversation, the more people like you who do a podcast that put that out there for people to listen to, that will change. But that's my hope. And I have hope because from where I was when I first was diagnosed and struggling to where it is today, mountains different so much more resources and education is it where it needs to be no but it's much better so my hope is that the trend continues amazing this was fantastic i really really appreciate it if if people wanted to find out more about the advocacy or the work that you do and where would you direct them 
Yeah. So a lot of people message me on social media, like DMs and stuff, because they'll see something I've done or they, you know, want to connect with me. So it's my name on every social media. So Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook and stuff. So it's just my name at Chris Tronson. So if you're listening to this, it'll probably say my name somewhere. So if you just go to that on social media, I'd say Instagram DMs are probably the best way. Also, my email is pretty easy. It's once again, my name. So Chris Tronson at gmail.com. I also do a lot of stuff with OCD Southern California or the International OCD Foundation or the Adversity to Advocacy A2A with Jeff Bell. So obviously, if you contact one of them, you can get a hold of me or if they hit you up, I mean, you could just pass it along. But, you know, one thing I try to do is advocacy is so important to me. So anytime somebody messages me, I always get back, even if it's not the same moment, because, you know, you get busy doing two careers in advocacy, but I will definitely make time and, and contact. So yeah, they can always reach out. I think it's something I would have wanted when I was struggling. I always tell people there was on my second appointment when I was in OCD treatment, I was in the waiting room. We, we had gotten there early. We beat LA traffic, which is a feat on its own. But there was somebody who was sitting next to me and we kind of picked up a conversation. I think she started it because of something I was wearing, but it was her last appointment. And I was like, wait, there's like a last appointment with this stuff. And she's like, yeah, I know I'm better. I don't need treatment anymore. I'm going back to school. I'm living my life. So just having a five minute conversation with somebody who's gotten better was enough to get me to like have hope. So that's what I hope people get from this is, is just knowing that you're not alone and that you can get better. I think that's so, so important. Thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I mean, it's an honor and it was a fun conversation and thank you. It's nice to finally meet you. Like I've definitely known about CBT Baltimore for so long. So to finally meet you and to talk to you and stuff like that, like I've been honored to be a part of it. So thank you for, for taking the time and having me on. I, I really appreciate it. Sure.